Lay it on me. Herod. So I'm, last week I said that it was in Acts chapter 11 and then I went back and checked. It's actually in Acts chapter 12. So in Acts chapter 12, King Herod is giving a speech and a bunch of people say the voice of a God and not of a man. And then he's just like, you know, taking it in. And so God was displeased and he sent worms to eat him alive until he died. So that is the, uh, one of the potential consequences of not telling people that you're not God when they call you God. And that's why when Thomas says my savior and my God, and Jesus doesn't correct him, that's Jesus claiming to be God. (laughs) So that's like what I was saying last week, but that is in Acts chapter 12. Okay, but for this week, who can remind me what we have been studying for the last three weeks? Starts with a G. What is it? It is on my shirt. What What have we been studying? We have been studying the gospel. In the first week, we talked about sin. So in the second week, we talked about hell. And last week, what did we talk about? We talked about Jesus. We talked about Jesus. Yeah, Jesus was all four points, right? All of the points were literally Jesus is. So we learned that Jesus is God. We learned that Jesus is perfect. We learned that Jesus is enough and that Jesus is necessary. And so for the last three weeks, we've been talking about the gospel. We've essentially shared it three different ways. And this week, we're concluding our series on the gospel. And that means that since we're finishing a series, next week will be Q&A night. So bring your questions. But before I start, I want to ask you guys, what are some things that you want? Money. Money is a fair one. Maybe you want money. Maybe you want like a video game. I see. Okay. Maybe you want a horse. What else do you want? What are things that you really want? Yes. Probably money. We all want, you know, I hear a lot of money. I hear horses. What are some things that you really, really don't want? Like things that you would pay money to not have problems. I mean, that would be this category. Yes. What are some other things? Sin. Okay. Sin. We got the, the Bible answer. Yes. I'm behind that one. What is it? Stress. Okay. Yeah. But you would not want anxiety in your life. What are some other things? Like maybe you don't want a cat because who in their right mind would want a cat? I've got some people very much agreeing with me. I've got some others who are very upset. Ella's like staring daggers at me. So now we've talked about things that you want and we've talked about things that you don't want. Let's say for a moment, let's imagine that you're walking down a road and you come to a crossroad. You come to a point at which the road splits and each of the paths is labeled. And one is labeled like something that you want, right? Like maybe it's your horse. Maybe it's $10 million. And the other path is labeled the things that you don't want. You don't want, you know, a cat. You don't want stress and anxiety. You don't want like diseases, right? So if you had to choose between the want path and the don't want path, Lily, which path would you choose? If you have a choice between the want path or the don't want path? The want path. No, yeah, this is not a loaded question. This is not a trick question. You'd go down the trail that has what you want, right? Like, yeah, you'd literally go down the trail that has the thing that you want. And last week, we were talking about the gospel. We've been talking about the gospel for three weeks and what it is. But this week, we're talking about what does the gospel look like in the life of someone that accepts it? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to have salvation? The message tonight is the gospel part four, salvation. And 
In Matthew 7, 13 to 14, it says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And last week, we were talking about the narrow gate, how Jesus is the narrow gate and everything else is the wide gate. But something that we don't talk about as often is the narrow path. The Christian life doesn't end at the gate. The Christian life continues afterward. And we're going to take a look at what does the path mean. But when we talk about someone who comes to a crossroad and they're picking between two paths and one is what they want and the other one is what they don't want, they pick the path they want. And when you share the gospel with someone there are a lot of people who don't want it. There are people who don't want God. There are people who don't want his salvation. There are people who don't want a relationship with God. And when you share the gospel with them, it's not attractive because they don't want it. And when they don't want it, they're not going to walk through the narrow gate and they're not going to walk on the narrow way. And so something that you need to think about is like, what does it mean to want the gospel? Because if you're not a Christian, you need to understand that. And if you are a Christian, you should understand what your life is supposed to look like. So, I'm going to read the first verse of Psalm chapter 1. And it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And so this is just repetition. He's saying, blessed is the man. This is a person who is a Christian. Psalm, chap, uh, Psalm 1 is a precursor to, Psalm, to the entire book of Psalms, and it's laying out at the very foundation, what does a righteous person look like? And it begins with Psalm 1. And we're going to be talking about that, but it says, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who stands, who does not stand in the way of sinners, who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Do you notice the progression there? Where it's like, first you're kind of walking with all the other sinful people, and then you stop, you stop walking, you're standing, you're like hitting in a a circle, talking to these people, building a relationship with them, and then you sit down. And this is where you're like committing to this relationship with these wicked people. And it's that natural progression where you're getting further and further into your sin with these people. But Psalm 1 verse 1 is just talking about who do you surround yourself with? You know, I heard a quote a while back, and it said that you are a reflection of the five people that you spend the most time with. Like, the way that you pick your friends, it actually speaks a lot about you. But it's not just that who you pick as friends impacts, like, is a thing that speaks about who you are. But the people you're around all the time, they influence you. You get advice from these people. So these people are speaking into your life. And when you're surrounded by really wise people and they give you a ton of good advice and then six times out of 10, you take their advice, you're actually making good decisions as a result of that, right? But what if you're surrounded by a bunch of really evil, foolish people and you take their bad advice three times out of 10? You're actually giving up the six times you could have done the right thing and you're adding those extra three times where you make a bad decision because of them speaking into your life. 1 Corinthians uh, 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. And the thing that you need to think about is that who you surround yourself with is a massive indicator of what's inside your heart, but it also is driving you in a certain direction. You see, when you become a Christian, you stop wanting your sin. It's not that you're having to like live your life and avoid all of the things that you really, really want to do but can't. It's that what you want actually changes. 
And I'm going to give you guys an example of this. How many of you guys uh, know my dad? I think that the majority of you have probably met him, right? So my dad, uh, he became a Christian when he was 18 years old. So he was a senior in high school, and he had not been a Christian before them. He was living a really sinful life. He was just involved in the world. And one of the things that he would do before he was a Christian is he would go out with his high school friends, and they would get drunk, and they'd be drinking a ton of beer and whatever else. And then they'd go to like the local you know, hangout spot over by the strip mall or whatever. And my dad's friend would go and pick a fight with people. And then after he picked fights with people, my dad would fight them. So my dad, this is just like a normal pattern for him. This is something that he would do, you know, when he was trying to kill the, kill the night or something. He'd go, he'd get drunk with his high school friends, and he'd get into fights. But then my dad became a Christian. And when my dad became a Christian, he looked at his life and he was like, I shouldn't be getting into fights all the time. I should definitely not be getting drunk underage, and I need to stop doing these things. So he told his friend, he's like, guy... I can't do these things. Like we can still hang out, but I'm not going to drink anymore. And I'm not going to let you get me into those fights anymore. And the guy friend's like, okay. So they go, they hang out. And as they're driving to the hangout spot, my dad's friend has like a six pack of beer in the passenger seat. And my dad is already drunk by the time he gets to the hangout spot. The friend does the exact same thing that he did before. He picks a fight. My dad gets in a fight. And at the end of that night, my dad looks back on it and he's like, all the things that I was determined not to do, I went, I hung out with this person, and I kept doing them, right? Because you have habits. You have people that are influencing you and encouraging you to do things you shouldn't be doing. So my dad called that friend, and he said, hey, man, I can't do these things anymore. And when I hang out with you, I do exactly the things I shouldn't be doing. For a while, I just can't hang out with you. And my dad stopped hanging out with that guy. He ended that relationship because it was driving him to sin. And this psalm is talking about you don't surround yourself with people that are encouraging you to sin, that are encouraging you to destroy your life because you don't want that. And you're not going to put yourself in situations that drive you to do the wrong thing. Luke 14, 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. And this doesn't mean that you like hate your parents in the sense like you want them dead and you're going to harm them, whatever. But it just means that compared to Jesus, everything else in your life needs to be willing to go. And for us, we live in the United States where this isn't as much a problem that we necessarily face, but like there's people that they become Christians and they lose their families. There's people that they become Christians, they lose their friends. There's people who become Christians and they lose their spouse. They lose their children. And in some places they lose their life. And in America, we're extremely fortunate that we don't have that kind of persecution. But if you go to Iran, where it's illegal to have a Bible, where it's illegal to sell a Bible, where it's illegal to read one, where you can be arrested and killed for that, and where Christians frequently are arrested and killed, like that's the level of commitment that you're supposed to have. And can't you give up some relationships that are driving you to sin? But beyond that, you should be surrounding yourself with people that will encourage you. In Hebrews 10, 24, it says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but, drawing, but uh, encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And the thing that you need to think about is that as a Christian, do you have a desire to be in church? Do you have a desire to be around other Christians? Because if you're a Christian, you're going to be hungry for that. 
because you need that. You need people encouraging you to do the things that you should do, and you want to be around those people. But that's the first point. The first point is that salvation changes your friends. Salvation changes who you hang around. Salvation changes the decisions about where you put yourself. But we're going to go on. We're going to read the second verse. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Real quick, what is God's law? What is he referring to? Anyone know? What is God's law? What is, what is the psalmist referring to? The Ten Commandments, that's part of it. More broadly, what it could be referring to? The Old Testament, yeah. It refers to the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the writings. Like When he says law, it doesn't just mean like Genesis through Deuteronomy. It's the entire word of God at that point. Because he says that, yeah, but it's the entire law of God at that point. On Psalm 119, it talks about delighting in the words of the Lord, delighting in the statutes of the Lord, and just the Bible. Like this is the law of God. And when it talks about delighting in the law, it's talking about delighting in the Bible. But let me ask you guys a question. Let's imagine for a moment that there's a guy who lives here in Orange County. So this guy living here in Orange County, one day he decides that there is something important that he needs to go do. So he gets in his car, he drives across the entire United States, all the way to New York. Once he's in New York, he gets on an airplane and he flies to Madrid, Spain. And from Spain, he walks for three years all the way to Beijing, China. Would you say that he's looking for something that he really wants? Would you say that he really wants to be there? Like he just drove across the entire country. He just took a plane. He just went to the other side of the world and he spent years doing it. Does he want something? Well, what if you talked to him and you said, man, what is it that you were looking for? And he said, goodness gracious, I was trying to get to Disneyland. Off the top of your head, how far away? Does anyone know how far away Disneyland is from where we're standing right now? 45 miles. About 40 minutes. So Disneyland is about 42 miles, 40 minutes away from where we're standing right now. So this guy, if he had wanted to go to Disneyland, what would he have needed? Directions. Directions. He would have needed a map, right? Because he just spent years looking for something and went all the way away from it, right? But I'm going to actually hazard to say that he didn't actually want to go to Disneyland. He spent all that time going and traveling and looking, but you know what he didn't do? He didn't look up where it was. If he really wanted to go to Disneyland, don't you think he would have checked Google Maps? Don't you think he could have got there? But instead, he didn't even look. And so the thing that I want you guys to think about is like, isn't that crazy? The idea of trying to go to Disneyland and ending up in China because you didn't look at a map. But if you're a Christian, what you want is to have a relationship with God. What you want is to have a deeper relationship with God. And how are you going to get a relationship with God if you don't have a map? How are you going to know how to please God if you don't read the Bible? Because where are you going to find that information? A Google search? No. You find it in the Bible itself. And so the thing that you need to think about is that if you are a Christian, you want to know God. And if you want to know God, the way you do that is by reading your Bible. So let me ask you this. If you're a Christian, none of you guys need to raise your hand, but how many of you, you know, 
actually read the Bible this week. Right? And I mean, the thing is, that's the crucial part of our life is that we need to know what the Bible says and do it. Like, if you're a Christian, you live on the Bible. Deuteronomy 8, 3 says, Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. You know, the word of God is like bread to a Christian. And how many of you guys have ever gone a day without eating? How many of you gone three days without eating? How many of you gone two weeks without eating? Now, how about this? How many of you have gone a month without reading your Bible? You would never go a month without eating food if you could help it. It leaves you weak. It leaves you hurt. It leaves you in, in pain and suffering. It leaves you irritable. It impedes your ability to function and live. And the thing is, if you don't read the Bible, it's the exact same thing. It impedes your ability to function. It impedes your ability to live. It puts you in a state of spiritual weakness and dismay. And if you're a Christian, you need to be in the Bible. And how many of us really make that a priority? But the thing that you need to think about is that salvation makes you want God. And that's the second point. Salvation makes you want God. And if you actually want God, you're going to find him in his word. In Deuteronomy 17, chapter, uh, sorry, verse 18 to 20, this is the law of kings. When God is putting a king over his people Israel, he says, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of the book of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear God by keeping all the words of this laws and these statutes by doing them. So if you are a Christian, you need to know what the Bible says because this is how you're going to live. This is how you get to know God. And if you're not, you should think to yourself, if I have no desire to know what God says, am I a Christian? Because this is the mark of someone who is a Christian. And it's not to say that we're perfect about it, but it is to say that you should be growing in this. So beyond that, verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And this is the final thing. This is like the final stage. When you have someone who they want God, they're not surrounding themselves with people that are sinful and wicked and they are actively trying to learn what God says about how to live life. This person is like a tree firmly planted. Have you ever seen like a tall oak tree in a windstorm? where the wind blows and blows and blows, but the tree just stands there? Why is it able to do that? Because it has big roots. Because it has roots going deep into the soil, getting its nutrition, and where it is nurtured by the water and the streams. It says it's like a tree planted by streams of water. And the notion of a Christian being a tree is actually something that Jesus talks about all the time. He says that you'll know a fruit by its tree. He says that the axe is laid at the base of each tree, and each tree not bearing good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And when you're thinking about your life, you need to think about what is the outflow of my life? What fruit do I have? Because let me ask you this. If you take a thorn bush, let's say that this thorn bush is like, yeah, I'm a tree. I'm an apple tree. I'm definitely an apple tree. And then it goes around and it finds all of the apples that have fallen on the ground and kind of like sticks the apples on itself. And then it goes back to its little place and it sits back in its little pot. Is it an apple tree now? 
but it has apples. Does that make it a tree, though? And the thing is that when you're a Christian, God has taken what you were, which was a thorn bush, and he actually turns you into an apple tree. He performs a miracle. He changes what you are. But the result of that is that you bear fruit. And you need to think about, am I bearing fruit? Does this actually describe me? But beyond that, salvation brings blessing. And that's the third point. Salvation brings blessing. And it's not just that salvation brings blessing in the end of the world, that salvation lets you get into heaven, but salvation actually makes your life better now. And I'm not saying that in the sense of like, you know, if you're not a Christian and you become a Christian, you're going to get all the things that you want. But when you become a Christian, you live life the way that God wants you to live life. Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom is skillful living. It's navigating the world the way that God wants you to. You know, you guys hear all the time about people who are like, I could never be a Christian. There's too many rules in that. I want to be free. I want to do what I want. You ever heard that? It's just a bunch of rules. I want to be able to, you know, have freedom. Well, let me ask you this. If you, like, own a car, if you own a car, you can fill it with gas, you can change its oil, you can change its tires, you can change its brakes, and if you take care of that car, you can drive anywhere, right? You can drive to the other side of the country. But if you own a car, are you free to, like, take sugar and dump it in the gas tank? Like, is that technically something that you you could do? No one's stopping you. But if you take a bunch of sugar and dump it in the gas tank, what's that going to do to the car? It's going to destroy the engine. Will you be able to drive that car anywhere? No. And so let me ask you this. Who is more free? The person who took a bunch of sugar and dumped it in their own gas tank or the person who does what they're supposed to with the car? Who's able to go where they want to go? The person who does what they're supposed to. And when God tells you how to live life, and when God tells you what he expects of people, God made you. You are the car. God is the mechanic. God made you. God knows how you function best. God made the world. He knows how you function best in the world. And whenever God tells you not to do something, don't think of that as some oppressive rule that he's putting on you. Understand that that's God saying, don't put sugar in the gas tank. Do what you're supposed to do. Things go well. Because in the end of verse 3, it says, in all that he does, he prospers. And this isn't to say that in everything in your life, things are going to go well. Things happen. They're suffering. That's how the life is. That's how the world is. That's That's how the world, that's how life is. But when you're someone who's sinful, when you're someone who disregards what God says, when you're someone who doesn't care, and you do whatever you so please, that's how you end up in situations like hooked on heroin. The kind of person who does what God says and doesn't, you know, go out and do a bunch of drugs all the time is the kind of person who doesn't get hooked on heroin. The kind of person who does what God says and they treat marriage the way that God says to treat marriage is also the kind of person that doesn't have three kids when they're in high school. The kind of person who handles life the way that they're supposed to is the kind of person who doesn't add all this unnecessary misery on themselves. And there are situations where maybe like someone forces you to take heroin, like they strap you down, they insert the needle into your arm, and it's like, it's not to say that those kinds of things don't happen. Suffering happens, there are things that are outside of your control, but when you're doing things and living life the way that you're supposed to, all of the unnecessary suffering that you don't need to have, you don't bring it on yourself. And so when you're living life the way that God wants you to, you prosper because God made life to work that way. But beyond that, I want to compare this to Matthew 7, 24 to 27, which if you read this chapter, it's extremely similar to Matthew 7. 
It says, everyone who hears these words of mine, this is Jesus speaking, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. And people read this passage and some of them think that it's talking about two Christians, one who does what God says, another one who doesn't. That's not what this passage is talking about. This passage is talking about a Christian and a non-Christian. Two ways, two trees, two paths, two houses. And so you need to understand that this is talking about the same people as Psalm 1 is. If you are a Christian, you're structuring your life on God and you're building your roots and you're digging deep and you're reading the word and you're not surrounding yourself with bad influences, you will be firmly established, not only in life, but also in the judgment that comes afterward. But non-Christians aren't like that because if we read the rest of Psalm 1, it says the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. They don't have the substance and weight of a tree. They're like straw on the ground. Verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And, I mean, a brief side note, Matthew 7, 24 to 27, it talks about foundations. Can any of you guys remember what I named the junior high group? foundations. That was an extraordinarily intentional name. Because my goal with you guys is I want you to understand the Bible. I want you to understand primarily the gospel. When I first sent a letter out to each of your parents, when I first started the junior high group, one of the things that I said was, I want my teaching to be clear enough that everyone in my youth group falls into two categories. Christians that know it and non-Christians that know it. And I want you guys to know and be able to identify what foundation you have and to make a decision. Because when you hear the gospel, it doesn't matter how good my presentation is. It matters what you want. Because if you have the opportunity to go down the path that you want or the path that you don't want, you'll choose the path you want every single time. And if I share the gospel with you and I present to you the path of obedience to God or the path of doing whatever you so please the vast majority of people pick the path of whatever they want to do, and they don't pick the path of what God wants them to do. So there are two paths in front of you. Psalm 1 is generally called, you know, the psalm of two ways. So which one are you going to be? Do you want to be the person who's firmly established, the person who has the structure and peace of God in their life, that even when hard times come, they have God in them to strengthen them through it? Or are you wanting to be the wicked man who does whatever he so pleases, who is like chaff that gets blown away, who's destroyed in this life and the next because he doesn't live the way that God tells him to and he also gets judged in the end for it? Because the option is yours. I can't force you to make either decision. It has to be a matter of what you want. But like we've talked about in Ephesians, like we've talked about elsewhere, that's a work of God in your heart. God changes your desire so that you are able to pick the thing that he offers you because without God actively making a miracle in your life, without God actively transforming you from a thorn bush into a tree, you will never make this decision on your own. But if you do, like we've talked about the last three weeks, 
you'll be free from your sin. You'll be free from hell. You'll be free from all of the brokenness of this world. And eventually, you'll even be free from its presence. And you'll be going up into heaven and you'll be with God forever. But the non-Christian doesn't even want that. And so that's the difference. In your life, you need to think about, am I a Christian? Have I actually accepted the gospel? Do I want to be around these sinful people that I've surrounded myself with? Do I want to engage in the activities that they're doing? Do I want that lifestyle? Or do I want to read the word? Do I want to know who God is? Do I want to obey it? Do I want to be the kind of person God wants me to be? Do I want the gospel? Do I want Jesus? And that's something that you need to think about. But you also need to think about it in these terms. You need to look at people's lives around you and see, okay, which one are they? What kind of fruit are they bearing? Because you need to have intentional gospel efforts. But with all that, let's, uh, let's bow our heads, we'll pray it out, and we'll do some small groups. Lord, thank you that you offer us a way of salvation. You did not have to give that to us. That is not something that we're entitled to, but instead, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life and to die on our behalf, bearing the sin that we deserved to bear. And you've made a way for us to come to you. I pray that each of us would value the gift that you are giving us, that each of us would actively want the gospel, that each of us would want a relationship with you, and that we would go down the narrow path and stay on it. I pray that we would see the benefit of a lifestyle lived for God's glory, but also of just having a relationship with him. That this would be something that defines our life. But also, Lord, that it would be a way for us to identify whether or not we are even Christians. Help each of us to be introspective and to evaluate ourselves with fear and trembling. And Lord, for those of us who aren't Christians, I pray that we would see your love and your mercy and your grace and that that would be attractive to us. And for those of us that are Christians, I pray that we would seek to live it out and spread it to others. And I pray these things in the name of our King Jesus Christ. Amen.